they're going to tell you no, but they're Uh looking to us to kind of guide them to get stronger. So we do need to be okay pushing them. I always say, if chemo doesn't kill them, a squat's not going to. So dig in. Hi, I am Alok and I'm your host at Pitarobic. Welcome to Fitness Pro Chat, the podcast by... Welcome to Fitness Pro Chat by Fitterobic. If you're looking to improve your health and well-being to lead a healthy, fit, and fulfilling life, whether you're an amateur or a professional athlete, this podcast is for you. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to you all. I am joined today by Sammy Mansfield, who is an oncology, wellness, and exercise specialist who has worked with organizations, healthcare, givers, fitness and non-profits. She brings expertise in cancer wellness program development and assessment and growth. Today, Sammy and I will discuss how to deal with challenges during life-threatening disease like cancer. Welcome to the show, Sammy. Thanks for having me, Alok. So good to see you and meet you. (laughs) Absolutely. Brilliant to have you, Sammy. So let me start with the first question. We would want to understand more about you, your work as an exercise oncology and lifestyle medicine leader. Great start question. I'll give you the quick summary for all of our listeners. Long story short, 20 years ago, I started actually as a personal trainer and realized how prevalent cancer was already 20 years ago, not only in diagnosis, but we were seeing people that had survived the treatments of cancer and were kind of walking around feeling really lost, especially physically. My happy place, I know cancer is a horrific disease, but being able to come in as a fitness professional and start to tie into cancer survivors was where I started 20 years ago. We didn't have any evidence in the benefits of exercise. The first actually published study came out in 2005, which seems crazy to see, um, or crazy to hear, I guess, because we're at a podcast. Fast forward here in now 2024, we know that not only is exercise beneficial, but we can actually reduce side effects of disease. We can improve survival. We can improve mental health and risk of dying from other diseases. So my career has expanded everything from working individually to working in industry and healthcare, as you mentioned. But my mission is it's not just exercise. Let's make sure we're talking about comprehensive lifestyle. So that's where we are in 2024 is really tying foundations of exercise into well-being and how we live our our best quality of life after a diagnosis of cancer. Everything is related to lifestyle changes and majority Mm -hmm. of uh, the life-threatening or non-life-threatening disease is because of poor lifestyle of any individual. So can you share a little bit about the role uh, of exercise oncology and lifestyle medicine for someone who has been diagnosed with cancer? Yeah, no, great question. And I think, you know, we should probably just do a quick pause and say, well, what the heck is exercise? What does exercise mean? Because I think yeah. there is all of these words used. In my in my description to healthcare professionals or individuals, in its purest form, exercise is physical activity that has a plan, a purpose, a goal, maybe an intention. So that could be I'm combating fatigue or I'm trying to recover from surgery or I'm trying to reduce my lymphedema, another cancer-related side effect. So exercise is planned movement with an objective in mind, right? It isn't just take a walk or run to the gym. Um, In the exercise oncology space specifically, we really look at how we can mitigate side effects. 
So we know as exercise oncology professionals, kind of that foresight of what's going to happen in six months with this treatment plan. And so our goal is to say, we know that these medicines really contribute to joint pain or muscle loss or so much nausea that someone's going to have a difficult time eating. And then they're treated with medications that might be a steroid, which makes a person feel better today, but they contribute to more muscle loss, weight gain, things like that. So our job as exercise oncology is to unravel that kind of complex question quickly and really work with the person in front of us where they are in their time point to understand how do we prevent that road from being rougher than it already is going to be. And that's true in survivors that are post-treatment as well, because even though a lot of our cancer survivors are completed with treatment, there are a lot of other side effects um, that they need to understand and manage, especially related to other disease. So this is where lifestyle plays a key role. Exercise is one thing, and we need to have planned exercise. But if someone doesn't incorporate the other pillars of lifestyle, nutrition, sleep, stress management, social connections, and avoidance of risky behaviors, which the number one risky behavior I tell people is sedentary behavior, right? So if we don't just, we like get you to exercise 15 minutes a day, but your stress is so high and we're not doing stress management, we're really not helping you. So that's really where the pillars come in. But as I mentioned, and you said, the foundation, I believe of almost everything is related to movement. So our job is to kind of translate this big complex kind of hairy ball of things into something that a person can digest, whether they're a patient, a caregiver, or a physician. You talked about how exercise oncology can really help someone deal with this entire set of fatigue, pain, anxiety, and all the other challenges that would come up, say, six months uh, from now. So it would be good to understand what are the lifestyle modifications that you suggest when dealing with someone who is diagnosed with cancer. Yeah, I mean, it's, I I will say this, I wish there was like a really perfect menu and there's not. So what I really tell people is let's take the six pillars, you know, and again, Uh starting with exercise and probably nutrition second, because that's actually the number one question people ask is nutrition. And let's figure out where you are and what's the most important thing for you to, to today. So as an example, if someone is really dealing with a lot of fatigue, maybe joint pain, um, they're just really struggling maybe with some depression or and also poor sleep, I might not tell them necessarily that you know going out with vigorous aerobic exercise is good because that requires motivation and sure. maybe they don't have balance. So I'm, I'm like, let's translate this to something that's strengthening. Resistance training builds those muscles that improve their energy, support their joints, We see definite evidence in anxiety, depression, and mental health. Um, We see improvements in sleep. So maybe we start there, something very bite-sized. I don't think we will ever have a perfect exercise plan or lifestyle plan for a cancer survivor. Or uh, any of us, you and I won't, because we are always evolving, right? So I think it's important that people understand what is the most troubling thing that I'm dealing with? What is the thing that I want to improve the most? And we start to tackle it there the number one reported side effect in cancer is fatigue. And one of the biggest reasons we see fatigue is because people that have a cancer diagnosis lose muscle mass at a rate of 10 times of normal of the average healthy perceived healthy adult. So if you think about if you've been sick, maybe you went down with COVID or had a bad flu and the few days coming back from that, you just felt like you've been run over by a vehicle that because it happens so fast a lot of our cancer survivors feel like that for 30 days at least 
when treatment is completed. So fatigue is really prevalent. We need to focus on kind of what do we do with that side effect? Because I get somebody moving versus feeling like, don't worry about five years from now. Let's worry about 30, 60, 90 days from now. I think that's really important in this population. Nutrition uh, in our entire uh, health cycle or health health transformation cycle, nutrition plays a very critical role, Mm -hmm. whether it's weight loss or dealing with diabetes or cancer. And you mentioned it about it. So what are the interventions that someone can incorporate in their lifestyle when it comes to nutrition? Anything specific that you'd want to highlight? You know, I, I would say I follow the research from in, in this population. It's the World Cancer Research Fund. We can make sure we, we add something as far as, uh-huh. you know, in the resources for our listeners. So the sure. most important thing is really thinking about reducing highly processed foods, especially in the cancer population. We have seen correlations to sugar, especially in sugar-sweetened beverages, um, and the risk of not only incidents, but recurrence in many types of cancer. And this isn't just breast or colorectal or even um, prostate. I mean, we're seeing this in multiple myelomas, um, Mm -hmm. other obesity-related cancers. So although I don't think it's just sugar-sweetened beverages that we should recommend, that's where the research is because it's easy to measure. But if we really understand added sugars across the globe, are one of the things that's really killing us as a population and contributing to chronic disease is really critical in our population, also due to a lot of the endocrine changes that happen from treatment, side effects, and medications. So I would say two things. One, reduce that. Two, increase protein. Because okay. that loss of skeletal muscle that we mentioned earlier, that loss that uh-huh. happens really quickly without adequate protein higher than what typically is recommended by standard nutrition guidelines, our individuals won't create new muscle to even combat that. They'll just sort of stay baseline. So rather than give someone a fancy nutrition plan, I'm like, if you could do those two things, reduce your added sugars, read your food labels, and increase protein, you make such a difference in your diet. I definitely think as much whole foods as possible is great, but that's, again, reducing processed ingredients. But I think if you're going to reduce added sugars, you're going to see people take out those processed foods because sugar is in something like 70 plus percent of the foods in the United States in our grocery stores. I think it's 72 percent, which is terrible. Um, Across the globe, I think it's closer to 60, but it's still pretty high. So I think those are really key. Definitely. And and one of the primary things it it is today, at least it is very difficult for most of us to segregate and choose the right kind of product because there's so much of sugar added sugar especially in packaged mm-hmm. food whether it's cookies whether it's you you buy a health drink you do have added sugar yes. you go and buy a juice packet it you have added sugar to everything so for someone who is unaware usually in the name of health they just keep adding or putting more added sugar to their uh, body so three things that yep. i took from what you have shared is one should avoid processed food. Uh, one should reduce or completely nullify added sugar and increase mm-hmm. their protein intake. So these are the three yep. main pillars that someone should follow from yeah. what you have mentioned. So I would definitely want to learn more about your uh, program, which is called Shift. And mm-hmm. what exactly is this all about? It would be great to understand from you. <laughs> you. It's like the magic question. I heard, so shift is a lifestyle based 
program, understanding, you know, or, or focusing on educating the average person, whether that's going to be someone who has no health information or honestly, a lot of my physicians who weren't, didn't receive the training, what lifestyle choices are important and how, and how do I do it? How do I go to the grocery store? Yeah. What do I do? So I really felt over my 20 years of my career that if we could just guide people to find behavioral changes that fit their life, no matter where they lived, how much money they had, how much time they had, what their personal food choices were, we could make a difference in their health and recovery. And I've done that through my my work. So Shift was created to be a resource. It's a 12-week lifestyle program that's a 100% self-guided framework. So someone can come into a module and learn all about protein and strengthening. And in uh-huh. you know 20 minutes of of following very simple, specific information followed by like, here's a task to go do for a week. We're really working on behavior change because rather than tell someone you have to exercise 150 minutes, I'm like, can we start with 10? People say, great, I can start with 10. What do I do? So shift is about, here's the five things that you start with this week. Here's your five exercises. Here's your one protein tip. Start there. And then we build over 12 weeks with those different habits, covering all six of the lifestyle pillars in a way that makes sense to the person implementing them, not in a way that would make sense maybe academically, right? But we follow the World Cancer Research um, Guidelines, like I mentioned. We follow the American Cancer Society Guidelines because we know really what people should do to reduce the risk of cancer and recurrence. But I think we're missing how do we translate that into, like you said, walking into a grocery store or ordering off the menu, And I think that's where people get really lost. They're like, well, that sounds great, but I don't know how to do that for me. And so that's really the whole goal of shift is to provide that, you know, easy, simple thing they can do on their own time and follow this program as they desire. And I think we almost forget that the simplicity of teaching someone a food label, I cannot tell you how many times someone's like, I had no idea that added sugar was something that was printed and I can avoid it. So they start to feel empowered. And and I, I think that that's fantastic to watch people go in and start picking up all those food labels, right? So that's really the foundation of the program. One follow-up question to that. Yeah. Uh, mostly someone who is diagnosed with cancer, obviously it's traumatic. It's uh, very difficult, someone who is undergoing chemo to do extensive physical exercise. So mm-hmm. it would be great to understand uh, when it comes to exercise. So what are the different forms of exercise that someone can try, especially and when they're undergoing chemo or they have just been diagnosed with cancer? Oh, great question. I think I would probably debate the time point to make a broad recommendation, meaning I cannot tell you the number of times in my career, especially when I was in clinical practice, that I would have like a 70-year-old undergoing an advanced cancer who was playing pickleball or you know some uh-huh. sort of sport type thing. Um, and then maybe a 30-year-old who was very sedentary. And you would yeah. think, right, like age. So what I say is this. I tell every patient that I work with in treatment, I want you to strive to do two things every day, 10 minutes of planned exercise, focusing okay. on strengthening or resistance training, right? And for a lot of our audience, we're going to know what that means. It could be dumbbells. It could be going to the gym. Although if they're immunocompromised, that's a little bit of a no-no. So we want to keep them maybe in a safer place, but they could be doing body weight. They could be doing bands. They could be doing any of that, but strengthening really is key because aerobic exercises, we know to be one of the most important types of exercise uses a lot of the same muscles and body, you know, your heart and lungs as activities of daily living are. 
So I'm like, keep doing all of your activities of daily living. Keep uh-huh. up doing that. Do your, keep doing your laundry. Don't let, don't pawn that off. Why? Because you'll feel accomplished and you'll get some exercise. True. But focus your planned exercise on strengthening. If someone is feeling great and they want to lift heavy weights, there's no reason they can't even on treatment. If they're feeling weaker, maybe balance challenges, then I start them in a chair. It does not matter what the level of intensity is, but we need full body strengthening, two full sessions of full body strengthening in a week. So if that means I'm going to do a little bit of upper body today and a little bit of lower body tomorrow and alternate that, that's perfect. But at the end of the day, I think it is actually better to be consistent than to do one Uh or two sessions a week. Because for someone undergoing treatment, the biggest problem of their fatigue is that they just don't have the energy capacity. And you know how like you drive a car and you're check where your gas light comes on. I think that's very different in a cancer population. They don't really see the the fatigue coming. It's like they go and then they're done. So I think we need to be really mindful of that when we're giving guidance to someone in treatment, especially is just you stop before you are tired because when you are tired, you've gone too far. Your body can't recover that fast on treat. I think that's the biggest thing. But other than that, there's really no limitations, to be honest. It's very individual. So one of the other aspect is body image. Uh, someone mm. who has been diagnosed obviously will be under very traumatic mindset and may there are chances that uh, the person can become very, very negative in terms of their thought process and the way they react to things. So how exactly you help them to move out of that uh, kind of mindset into uh, positivity that's a great question. I think that question is definitely not asked enough or is only asked in populations like breast cancer, where there's just a lot of surgical, you know, scars in an area that's just very feminine. Right. But I think that one of the things that I, I want people to understand about body images, you know, cancer and the fallout really changes their physical appearance. Largely again, they gain weight, they lose muscle. So I see this broadly across, you know, both genders, right? And I think that one of the things that that translates to is I just don't feel as strong. I don't feel as confident. I don't know how my clothes fit. I mean, when we're talking body image, I think it's important to kind of understand a little bit of what that may translate into practical for someone. Is it something that they're not comfortable in their clothes or is it they're not comfortable looking in the mirror or they're not comfortable because they've lost so much ability to, you know, take care of the house or take care of the yard. And it's a little bit of feeling at ego, but just feeling kind of, you know, worthless. My, when I deal with older adults, they say to me commonly, I feel like a burden, meaning I, I don't have the physical ability. I'm relying on other people and I feel like a burden to my family. So that's actually a body image challenge because they're in their physical sense. So I kind of actually go back to my same recommendation. We need to get them exercising. We need to build their strength, you know? So it, it kind of yeah. relates back to, but I think it's also understanding maybe how that translates into their life and, and where that body image um, kind of comes from. I will add one comment back to our my top three in nutrition. We said this, you know, briefly off um, recording earlier that so many people are focused on weight. When people bring uh-huh. to me weight, I'm like, well, that's great. But if we do those three nutrition things at exercise, they're going to also lose weight. So bonus, you know, it, but they're not focused on the weight. They're focused on getting their lives back. And I think that's really beneficial for our population. Absolutely. Other question is like returning to normalcy, especially after cancer is extremely crucial. And mm-hmm. what should patients do to gain back their skills and confidence uh, that they had 
pre-cancer time and, and then embrace life to the fullest? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, of course, it, there's always going to be a fallout. There's going to be a fear of recurrence in the majority of our population. I mean, the five-year cancer survival rate on average is in like the mid-80s across the world, like mid-80%. So we have a really good five-year survival rate, but I do know that people are very fearful. I really believe that this is the power of lifestyle, meaning if you feel like you're taking action, that you're reducing your risk of your cancer recurrence or dying from another disease, the majority of our cancer survivors are not going to die from cancer. They're going to die from cardiovascular disease. Not, you know, we've cured the cancer, but we've created this other challenging, you know, mess of side effects and other diseases, right? So I think it's really important to do that empowerment piece of like taking the tools to kind of build your body back up and kind of realize that you have a choice of, of contribute. You can contribute to your um, risk going down. And I don't think people feel that way. I think it's important to mention that the genetic link in cancer across the world is only 10%. But lifestyle is linked to close to one third. So people say, well, I don't have any cancer in my family. Well, I mean, it it doesn't always matter. So much of it is is related to lifestyle. Significant amount of that is related to something like tobacco or alcohol. But Mm -hmm. um, there is a lot. We have a lot more control than we think. So I really believe that churning that lifestyle component is a great way to get back. I mean, certainly follow with your, you know, physicians and appropriate scans, but take care of yourself to to take those actions yourself really do make a big difference in our population and the caregivers truly the caregivers are really important here as well i have a very uh, interesting question for you to understand especially okay. as a professional because this is a kind of a disease which is life threatening and and someone who is um, unfortunately diagnosed with it so is really struggling to keep pace with the life uh, and so many internal mm-hmm. changes are happening within the body so how as a professional uh, apart from the technical aspects that you deliver in terms of nutrition lifestyle changes and all of that so as an individual or as a uh, and as a professional so what sort of compassion that you bring to this relationship so that someone <laughs> really feels uplifted? Yes, they can do it. Well, I think probably my number one goal in working with individuals is understanding a little bit like what makes them tick and what's important to them. So I cannot tell you, I don't usually come in with, I'm the exercise girl because someone in cancer is like, yeah, uh-huh. I don't need you. Right. Yeah. Like, I'm good, you know, and and maybe they were an exerciser. So this is hardly the thing that they want with their chemo. Absolutely. So I think, yeah, coming in with talking to someone about wellness and lifestyle has always been my kind of entry and, and then explaining to them why, you know, exercise is important. But I will say we, we need to understand someone's why. And it's actually the reason that the first module of the shift program is about finding your why, because if you don't know your purpose for making these changes. It isn't just surviving cancer. Because I think that people say that, but then they're like, but that's not really what I want. They want to survive cancer because they want to be able to see their grandkids or they want to be able to take a trip or they want to be able to live in their home independently. So as a professional, my job is about unraveling and understanding their why. So I always listen for cues when I start to talk to them about maybe exercise. Do you exercise? Oh, no. Tell me why not. Well, I don't really like to. Any reason? Well, I feel uncomfortable in the gym or, you know, maybe 
I'm, I'm nervous about my body or I'm nervous about my function or I've never really learned it, whatever that is. Oh, okay. So then it's like, well, tell me about your life. What do you enjoy doing? And, or is there one thing that you would love to do, but you physically can't? And those questions allow me to understand, okay, well, if you do this exercise plan from your chair, you can do it watching TV. If you want, you're going to be able to improve that thing. And people are fascinated that it's reachable. And so I think this actually goes back to hope. I think Uh if it allows us to give someone hope that they can physically, mentally, nutritionally, stress-wise, they can get better. And I I really believe that, you know, I've always believed that this is the pixie dust. And and I've said that in other, you know, settings that I think exercise is pixie dust. But I think that this whole lifestyle piece is pixie dust and cancer because it gives people something really powerful that they can uh, translate into hope, not just going through the treatment. So anyway, kind of a long answer, but find (laughs) the why. The why is key. Absolutely. I think that's brilliantly explained. And uh, that intrigues me to ask you another question around support systems, especially mm-hmm. with, with around disease like cancer. So obviously, people need that sense of belongingness to a community where you have people and sharing their own experiences and support system that is built at home, actually. So mm-hmm. how do you intervene or create interventions in these support systems and help a patient deal with the situation? I think that's a really important question. We know that patients who have caregiving support or support, whether that's from a friend or a support group, typically do better at side effects, et cetera. So I think it's important, and I've always been of the practice, if I'm going to talk lifestyle, I'm going to include the caregiver in the conversation. So I found out if there's a caregiver, are they supportive or are they a barrier? I have been in many situations that caregivers are not always supportive, and it's not my place to have an opinion on that, but it's just understanding the framework. If I do have a supportive caregiver, I bring them right into the conversation and we target three things. We target the practical. What are the practical things you need to do? Like that has to do with getting to appointments, Uh paying bills, children, family work, whatever. What are the health things you need to do with cancer and lifestyle? Do you like to exercise? You know, like what is your plan? Caregiver, are you exercising? Because caregivers usually don't take care of themselves. So they kind of appreciate some attention to themselves. And then we talk about what are we going to do for fun? Because wellness and lifestyle is not just about exercise and diet. It's also about living your best life. Do you like to do a specific thing? What is that? But bringing caregivers into the conversation from the beginning is critical. And also I would encourage all of my colleagues, wherever we are in exercise oncology or just exercise, ask the caregiver pointedly what they're doing for themselves because you will win them over immediately because they want to also have a voice and they're often very ignored. So I think that's really the biggest lesson I've learned in my career is how important group and then that individual conversation is. And also it's a great thing that if I'm working with a patient on treat, if the caregiver is supportive, then I really believe not only does the patient do better, um, but I think that the patient feels really good about doing something and not taking away from the caregiver. So I think it's really important to get everyone on the same page um, for the best overall outcome, for sure. A great question. Thank you so much. Just before this podcast, we were talking about how technology is influencing mm. our lives. And there's there's a lot of obviously technology in advancement that has happened with generative AI in the last few months. So I wanted to yeah. understand from your experience, how exactly caregivers or professionals like you have started using artificial intelligence as a technology? Yeah, and I, I, I personally am a huge as I mentioned to you kind of starting, but I'll say for our audience, I'm a huge fan of leveraging the technology that we have because in my belief system, 
we have these tools to advance what we do and how we do it in ways that just, I mean, can be so powerful for individuals. So I think there's a couple of things. Yeah. I think one of the key things is um, AI has allowed us actually to find research quicker. Not every AI, you know, platform allows us to do this, but when you're really looking for something, you know, with some meat behind it that has research behind it, it's really a way to kind of help you not only get the information, but translate the information. Reading sure. scientific journals for exercise oncology professionals can be really overwhelming. So it allows me to kind of pull information, look at that in a translation and have a tool that I could give to somebody or even then, you know, take another layer. So I think there's ways to gather information in a, in, in a really nice a uh, useful way uh, to, to to deliver it. I think that you know there's this attitude that you can use AI to create a you know what's the cancer exercise program for breast cancer, but uh-huh. as professionals we don't have that information, so therefore AI isn't sure. going to be able to use it because it doesn't exist. So I think what we need to say yeah. is if it doesn't exist in the real world, AI isn't going to uh-huh. help us with it. We need Absolutely. to focus on what's available in the real world and how can we can use it to accelerate our delivery to take something and translate our brain maybe to readability or, you know, create a, create a blog post or something like that. So I think that's the way to use AI right now. But I I think that, you know, people are using AI to say like, what's the kid, you know, cancer exercise program and I have colon cancer. Again, it doesn't exist in the real world. It's not going to exist in AI. So, uh, but I think it's a useful tool and I really hope we, we learn to use it even better. And I definitely am, am working on learning that learning curve myself as well. Yeah. No, that, that's very rightly said. It it is a tool that can augment uh, our skills. Then, mm-hmm. obviously, yes, it, it's not going to replace us uh, unless we we stop using it and say no. I am aversive to this kind of technology. It's not going to replace us because the more we use it, the more master we become to tackle and, and understand this technology in a much better way. So, I think it would be great to understand from you few real life stories of cancer mm-hmm. patients and draw inspiration from these stories for all the listeners and people who are watching this. Yeah. I swear, I, I just, I will tell you, I have so many stories, but I will say a couple of that are, I think are really, really key because I think that the perception is, you know, like something like a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. Um, I yeah. have worked with this woman. Um, she was the time that I, I, I kind of knew her from afar before she was when I was in clinical practice and she was uh-huh. diagnosed with pancreatic cancer for the second time. And for the audience, the survival rate of a first-time pancreatic cancer is 9%. So she survived survived it. Yeah, it's a really, it's usually found quite late. And because of where it's located, it's very hard to treat. And and other reasons, we don't have, you know, tons of treatment options. So if the one treatment doesn't work, you know, there's a lot of less options. So when they came back the second time, she had had surgery the first time and I helped her recover after surgery. Came back the second time, she wasn't eligible for surgery because it was wrapped around a really key vein in her body called the portal vein. So they were like, can't surgically repair it, we'll treat it. So she's five feet tall. She's about 105 uh-huh. pounds. She's just very okay. slender. Her love of life was her garden. So she wanted to be able to have the physical abilities to be able to go to the garden, work in the garden, as well as play with her grandkids. And so at the time, I was actually running a cancer exercise program in a CrossFit gym in Kansas City. And I had this class and she would come into the gym and she would lift weights, right? You know, she uh-huh. had the smaller 15 pound bar, but she said, I feel inspired by them because I see how they move. And so therefore they're inspiring me to move. Well, they're inspired by the two-time pancreatic cancer survivor. 
And she yeah. also had to wear gloves in the gym because she had a, a condition that would made her cold or her treatment made her cold sensitive. And so a bar in oh. the summer even made her wear gloves. But guess what? She came into the gym three times a week. She brought her friend as her caregiver because she didn't want to have to worry about the energy to drive. And her job was to come into the gym three times a week so she could live her best quality of life. And she really did. And it actually wasn't the cancer that actually ultimately ended her life. She got a really bad infection and she just wasn't able to fight it off. But I will tell you the quality of life for someone with that diagnosis where we would have been like, oh my gosh, pancreatic cancer. She lived her best life until she didn't. So I think that's really key. I've seen that in many, many patients. I think a choice is one thing, but I go back to the way I worked with was I found her why. Same thing. Mm -hmm. Want to work in the garden? Want to play with my grandkids? Great. You do this. And I think, you know, I've worked with so many individuals over the last, um, you know, my 20 years of my career that they really do want to understand how to not get so beat up. And so, you know, coming in early from the day of diagnosis and putting exercise on their plate was thought to be too much. I, I will translate or I will argue that because I think that although we give them treatments and when they show up in treatments, they have no control. This is something they can control that's actually going to improve. So in my career, the earlier I see people, especially ones that really do want to make those you know habit changes, mm-hmm. yeah, they do better. I do. I mean, I have so many stories or videos of people, you know, in the gym lifting, and you would never know that they had an advanced cancer. Like you would never know. Oh. And I think that that's the way they want to live too. They don't want someone to go, "Oh, you're the cancer patient." They want someone to say, know them for who they are. And I think that that's something that exercise gives people is a different identity, a different way to be known. And, and that's kind of where uh, I saw that. And then I will add one last thing. These are all people that would get really frustrated when I try to pare back their workouts because they were having symptoms uh-huh. because they were like, no, I need to keep pushing. And I think that we as cancer exercise specialists think we're going to hurt somebody. I will tell you, I think that our job is to help push them because they know what their kind of their, their point, their top point is they're going to tell you no, but they're uh-huh. looking to us to kind of guide them to get stronger. So we do need to be okay pushing them. I always say if chemo doesn't kill them, a squat's not going to. So dig in. <laughs> At least that's my mentality. <laughs> so far- that's really inspiring to <laughs> learn about how, I mean, compassionately you have to deal with this kind of situation and then you have to work towards improving life of, of patients who are uh, yeah. in most cases at advanced stages and then all of that. That's really commendable. Thank you. Well, so, and I will add one thing. I, I will say that I do think that there is an emotional aspect for us as exercise oncology professionals. I mean, many people that I'm absolutely. close to have died over the years, right? And yeah. that's really challenging sometimes to realize. And so the mindset I have is I improved their life while they were here. I don't know if I helped them live a longer life. But I know yeah. I help them live a better life. You almost have to kind of take that on because with the advancement of medicine, if you're going to work in this field, we are going to get more and more advanced cancer patients. It's just the reality because we Absolutely. they're living longer with a metastatic disease. So the reality is their death is still imminent at some point. So the focus yeah. is how do I help you live better today, right? Because we don't know when we're going to die. None of us do. And I think that that's something that, you know, you you learn to, to kind of find your pace as you go, but that's our reality, but it's totally worth it. It's I, one of the best careers I could have chosen, even on the worst days, for sure. 
Yeah. I, I imagine that was exactly the same uh, question that I, I wanted to ask, uh, especially yeah. on the emotional side, because this is a kind of disease where you do not know if, if the patient is going to survive, not survive. The chances are yeah. minimal uh, and uh, helping them come out of this kind of situation. And, and next day, you don't know if they're, they're, they're going to be there or not going to be there. It can even yeah. be traumatic uh, in, as, as a professional for you as well. So, yeah, it's really commendable. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, thank you. Uh, this brings us to another question, which is trying to understand what are the top three recommendations that you'll have for all cancer caregivers, uh, patients, and their families uh, in dealing with this kind of situation? You know, I, I really feel like one of the things that people miss is the, the areas that they do have control in. I mean, I kind of go back to, and again, I don't say this all in exercise or lifestyle, but I, I do feel a lot of people have cancer and it's like deer in headlights, you know, yeah. they're just, they have no idea. And they, they do research on the side, but they go back and they, you know, they take everything that their doctor says and just focus on that and realize that, you know, these physicians only have often 10, 15, maybe, maybe 20 minutes to kind of explain a lot of information. And I think that sometimes we need to really push patients, caregivers, family members, whoever, it's okay to ask questions. You know, yes. it's okay to ask, ask the different questions about information or ask to speak to, you know, whether it's an advanced, you know, a nurse practitioner, ask the chemo nurses or, you know, the other treating staff that supports you ask questions that are important to you because if you don't ask, they don't know. And so the lens mm -hmm. is often very clinical, but the health and well-being of our patients really is important. But I don't True. think the clinical workforce and the way that our systems universally across the world are set up, we're as good at asking. To a comment that you made earlier, we silo that. We think clinical care is over here and well-being is over here and the other side. Mm -hmm. And I think that yeah. we need to push and remind our patients, you, you can advocate for your well-being. And actually, most physicians are quite receptive. As long as the questions are not, you know, maybe, well, what supplement should I take for fatigue? And the yeah. reason that physicians aren't receptive to that is we don't have evidence in that kind of that realm, but they'll talk about sleep or stress, exercise. Yeah. They might refer to rehab or another community program. So I think we need to really encourage our patient population and caregiver population to continue to advocate for quality, not just quantity, but quality. And I think that's really something that we have the tools for. AI can help with that. I think that we're really well positioned to, to kind of bring those pieces together for the um, quality of life of our survivors, for sure. Absolutely. So that brings me to the last question of our uh, podcast today. And this mm -hmm. is a personal one. So apart from work, sure. obviously, your, your work life is, is very, very, uh, not only busy, I should say, it involves a lot of compassion. It involves a lot of human touch. I wanted to understand what keeps you busy apart from work. <laughs> well, I mean, I will say like being a, a good, you know, Steward of the six uh, pillars is probably my big thing. Um, I'm fortunate and in, in the world has, you know, the technology that we have has given us a lot of ability to travel. So uh, we, my husband and I, and we have a dog, experience a lot of travel. Um, uh -huh. So I think that that has been something I've really enjoyed. And the simplicity of, of going places and seeing things that aren't... Um, that are a little bit unique and they're not kind of the, the tourist places. I think that's been sure. one of my biggest things. We've been doing a lot of travel in the last few years since, you know, once kind of COVID lifted, we realized like many people, 
we wanted those experiences. So travel has been my number one thing. Um, we're getting ready to embark to Asia for a little bit of time. Cool. So I think I'm really looking forward to, to doing that. Um, and then really it's, it is kind of doing the six pillars myself. Like I mentioned of lifestyle, I have actually uh-huh. sort of, a, I always say this is really kind of funny to think about because I am a really, I'm very much an extrovert, but the social connectedness pillar for me, which is one of the six pillars is my most challenging. And the reason why is I tend to find that if someone, I don't want to be around someone, I just kind of, you know, put them over to the side. So I've really learned that I, I've been seeking, you know, like-minded people, people that like yourself, that make me think differently, that bring a new perspective. Yeah. LinkedIn is actually like, we kind of, how we connected is a really great way to do this. So sometimes sure. I'm out like on LinkedIn, kind of seeing who's out there making change in the world and <laughs> where I can kind of get involved in that. Because I, I feel like it, it just feels so good to be with people where you're not having to convince them of this importance. Sure. They get Absolutely. it. And then it's like, how do we work together? So being true to myself, for sure. Yeah. Finding time to exercise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much, uh, Sammy. Yeah, uh, great speaking with you today. And uh, there, there, there are a lot of information that we can share with the audience uh, going ahead as well. So thank you so much uh, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun. That's a wrap. Thank you for listening to Fitness Pro Chat by Fit Aerobic. We hope you had key takeaways from today's episode and learned something new. Don't forget to download and subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. And leave us a rating and review on your favorite platform. In the meantime, reach out to us on Instagram at Fit Aerobic or through our website, fitaerobic.com. And remember, failures will only make you strong and better learn. Take care, stay healthy, and live a fulfilling life with Fit Aerobic.